not mean to tell you, or I'm not meaning to teach you, that Isaiah 59 was written as a liturgy, but Isaiah 59 very much lends itself to liturgy, which is why I did all that part of the liturgical service and worked through the different parts. Because one way to look at Isaiah 59 is to look at it as if it were written as a liturgy. There are very specific parts or components that Isaiah works through in this particular chapter that certainly lends itself well to thinking in liturgical terms. So on the back of that little worship folder that you have, I've got the liturgy broken out. I don't have the entire chapter on there simply because I didn't want to do more than four pages inside your bulletin for space sake. But Isaiah chapter 59, it kind of starts off with a call to worship, where in verse 1 it reads, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. What a wonderful call to worship to God's people. The Lord is almighty in power and goodness and grace. But then it immediately shifts into this, from the call to worship, to a terrible indictment. Verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Which then leads to a verdict, which on the worship folder that I have, I have the speaker being Isaiah but I realize it could just as easily be the entire congregation. So I wish I'd given you the alternative. It's either Isaiah speaking or the entire congregation. The verdict is this, so we can read this together since it could be the congregation. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. And it moves from the verdict to then the congregation, in, uh, beginning in verse 12, is confessing like we did a, a confessional part of our liturgy. So let's read together the couple verses there. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Now, this is a fascinating passage of Scripture. We've already done 14 and a half verses last week. So all that we've read so far are verses I covered in greater detail last week. But one thing that I didn't tell you last week about those verses, which is terribly important, is a major shift took place beginning in verse 9. I mean, you've got that word, therefore, which tells you a, a big conclusion or a big shift is about to take place based upon... The indictment, therefore, but the other transition or the other thing that shifted from charges against them to, ident to identifying with their sin. Up until that point, it's like your words, your lips, your hearts, 
And then all of a sudden, with that therefore, it's justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. In the confession, Isaiah includes himself for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. It's fascinating. In those first eight verses, Isaiah is telling them the sin. He's demonstrating their sin to them, but in the confession, Isaiah includes himself. What just happened there? How did that take place? What is Isaiah doing? There's two possibilities. One possibility, it's a good, they're both good possibilities. One is Isaiah is using that, that plural pronoun, confessing for the people. Isaiah is confessing for them. They're not necessarily confessing themselves. He's confessing for them. A very similar situation is found in Daniel chapter 9. So in your minds, if you want to, you know, Think maybe later in the week. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. It's a fascinating passage of scripture. Daniel was taken into exile into Babylon. Daniel came after Isaiah, long after Isaiah. Daniel's taken captive into Babylon. He spends basically most of his life in Babylon, probably when as a small lad, uh, maybe an adolescent. He died in Babylon. But Daniel's taken to Babylon And he realizes, reading Jeremiah's prophecy, that Jeremiah said, we're going to be captive for 70 years. And Daniel realizes the 70 years is about up. And in Daniel chapter 9, he begins praying a prayer about how they still haven't learned their lesson. Daniel begins praying a prayer, we're still the same. Our sin is still with us. After 70 years of God disciplining us, taking us out of Jerusalem, Seeing the temple destroyed, we're no better than we were. And the interesting thing about Daniel is there's no sin ever recorded against Daniel. I do not mean to say Daniel was sinless. Daniel is a rare individual in all of Scripture because most other characters in Scripture, we see their sin. And Scripture intentionally does that. He wants us to know, Scripture wants us to know, salvation is not in any man other than the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But Daniel is a bit of an odd exception. He's an outlier that though he was a sinner, there's no sin charged against him in the record that we have of Daniel. And so it's that much more striking that Daniel is confessing his sin, confessing the sin of Israel before God when we don't know exactly what Daniel did himself. Isaiah also, on a previous occasion identified with the sin of Israel back in Isaiah chapter 6 when he was first called to ministry and he saw a vision of the Lord in his holy temple and the train of the Lord's robe filled the temple and and there were the seraphim crying holy 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 is the Lord God almighty the whole earth is full of his glory and then Daniel says woe to me I'm a man undone or another version says I'm a man ruined The English Standard Version really falls flat. It says, I'm lost. Yes, you're lost. I I prefer the version, I'm ruined. I'm undone. I have unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah recognizes it's not just Israel's sin, it's my sin. Daniel recognizes it's not just Israel's sin, it's my sin. 
this is a good time to mention before I forget, on the back foyer counter, I've got this article from Christianity Today. It was put out in, it was in the magazine March of 2020. Fascinatingly good. It will probably offend you. I reread it a year since I read it. I reread it. It offended me again on the first page because I kind of had a position. It, it kind of brings up a divisive issue and it probably will stir you up. But I have to John MacArthur and Beth Moore, and I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm on this side, or I'm on that, and it, it might stir that up. Don't, that's the point of the article. Read past the first page. Don't be like, that first page, I'm done. I'm not going to, read past the first page. The first page is this wonderful treatise on what it means for Christians to identify with each other's sin, and not to view ourselves in isolation from the sins of others. It's fascinatingly good going to discuss this at the end of the month at our breakfast discussion because we ran out of book chapters, and I haven't got a new book picked. Uh, especially for the men, if you're a part of the book discussion or the breakfast on the last Wednesday of the month, pick one of these up. They're on the back foyer counter. I hope I run out because I, want, I would love for every family, every family group to get one of these articles and read it, and if I run out, I'll definitely have more up there next week. But that's the... Uh, I. Isaiah may be praying on behalf of the people. He may be doing that like Daniel. The second alternative, which is also likely, and I kind of prefer it, is that Daniel isn't praying alone. That when those plural pronouns are found about our transgressions are multiplied, our sins testify against us, our transgressions are with us, that in fact, this is Israel prophetically Isaiah is envisioning a time when Israel, when they're confronted with their sin, instead of making excuses, instead of stoning the prophet, instead of throwing the prophet in a pit, instead of denying the prophet, instead of all those things, there will come a day when Israel, confronted with their sins, will pray that prayer. And Isaiah prophetically is praying it with them. Israel acknowledges their sin. But what follows confession? What follows confession? Assurance of pardon. Assurance of grace. God's grace is never withheld when confession is made. So that's the beauty of liturgy. But you have to go through confession to get the assurance of pardon. This whole thing is summarized in verse 14, the state of Israel at this point in history. In verse 14 it reads... Justice is turned back, righteousness stands far away, truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. That in spite of all that the Lord has done on behalf of his people. The Lord took his people from, he made them a nation in the land of Egypt, and they became slaves. But the Lord took his people out of Egypt by his mighty arm, he brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where they had vineyards and, and cities and walls, things they didn't have to labor for and build. The Lord gave them this land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord promised and provided his presence to be with them in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. The Lord gave them, entered into a covenant of law with them where they would know how would they walk before him, this God who by his grace called them out of Egypt. How would they live before this holy God? He gave them his covenant of law. He gave them priests and sacrifices. He gave them 
every once every week they celebrated. We're not slaves. We're the Lord's people. We celebrate freedom and deliverance. We celebrate these feasts that the Lord has given us. And the Lord raised up different leaders. Uh, provided, well, in the wilderness wanderings, if you go back, he provided manna, even in, in the midst of their unbelief and rebellion. The Lord has done so much for this people. So much for this people. And yet, after all of that, what I find out in verse 14 in Isaiah's day, after all those centuries of time, justice has turned back, righteousness stands far away, truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Nothing's changed. We've still got a problem. So then in the second half of verse 15, if the first half of verse 15 says, uh, truth is lacking, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey, that would be the remnant. And then the second part of verse 15 says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Now, there's two words using, uh, describing the Lord's reaction to, to the state in verse 14. The first word is he, it displeased him. The second word is he wondered. I don't like either one of those words. Uh, both of those words seem a little soft. The first word, displeased, it's a word that is generally translated the idea of something being evil or bad. It's kind of a more of a moral word. It's like, I'm displeased when I leave uh, my home to come to the office and I hit all the lights red in, in Mount Zion. There's like four stoplights. If I hit them all red, I'm displeased. Uh, my favorite restaurant and I, I decide this is the meal I want, which is Anatai. I recommend it. But if I go to Anatai and tonight I decide I want Penang curry and they're like, once it happens, they're out of green beans. I'm displeased. This is my favorite restaurant. I come here every week, almost. And I want, you know, I wanted that, that. I get displeased about lots of things. I get displeased when my team doesn't win, uh, which happens a lot. Uh, this is more than the Lord is displeased. It's, it's a displeasure aroused by something that should not be happening. It's not immoral that the lights are red when I come up to them. But what's happening in Israel is a wicked, immoral situation in light of all that the Lord has done for them. And truth is lacking. There's no righteousness. There's no uprightness. That's a problem. He's displeased. But it's a displeasure aroused by what is wicked, what's immoral. The word is first used, out of all the times it's used in Scripture, the very first time it's used is in Genesis, a familiar story. It's when... Angels from the Lord are sent to Lot to rescue Sodom because it's going to be destroyed by God. And when those messengers enter into Lot's home, there are men that are beating on the door saying, "Come, we want these men sent out to us. And Lot says, don't do that wicked thing. Same word. Lot isn't displeased. Like, I've got guests, don't bother me. He's like, this is a wicked thing. And those men say, if you don't send them out, we'll do something even more wicked to you. That's the same word. It's a wicked thing. The Lord is looking at what's happening in, in his people, his chosen nation, and it is wicked. And he is displeased. That's the word. The second word is it says he wondered, 
that there was no man, no one to intercede. That word wondered is also uh, a rather weak word. It's a word, uh, the basic root is from theological word book of the Old Testament. The word wonder, it's desolation caused by some great distress. So it's not just, huh, in light of all that I did for those people, I just don't get it. It's not that kind of wonder. It's a, it's a distressing wonder. It's a, it's a more tumultuous The same word is used in almost the exact same situation in Isaiah chapter 63. And because it's translated so much better, it's that much more surprising that they didn't translate the same word the same way in verse 16. Go to chapter 63 and verse 5. Chapter 63 and verse 5. It reads, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled but there was no one to uphold. My own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. In chapter 63 and verse 5, the Lord is appalled. He isn't wondering. He's appalled. This is a travesty. It's the same thing in chapter 59 and verse 16. It should read, he saw that there was no man and he was appalled that there was no one to intercede. This reminds me of a New Testament text. It's one that we've already looked at when we've been in our series in Isaiah. So I don't want to try to rehearse the whole thing, though I'm tempted. Because in in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 5, John is also appalled. Now, it's not the same word because John's revelation is written in Greek. This is Hebrew. Isaiah wrote in Hebrew. But in John's revelation, in Revelation chapter 5, he sees an angel with a scroll written on both sides. And that scroll is sealed with seven seals. And the angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And a search is made. And on heaven and on earth, among all of God's saints, among all people who have ever lived on God's earth, no one is found worthy to open the scroll. And John weeps. He weeps. Because the scroll can't be opened. And that scroll represents all of God's purposes of salvation and redemption. That scroll represents all that God intends to do that will bring him glory. And it's not going to be opened. It's not going to be fulfilled. It's going to fall flat. And then then John is told, behold, there's a lamb. And that lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And the scroll is opened. And God's plans of redemption are brought to completion and fulfillment because a scroll is open, because one is worthy. In the same way, in Isaiah chapter 59, the Lord is appalled that there's no one to intercede. So, it says in the last part of verse 16, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. What does it look like when the Lord's arm brings works salvation for himself. No one else is doing anything. Everyone else is ineffectual, incapable, unwilling. What does it look like when the Lord, his own arm, brings him salvation? Well, what did it look like when the Lord's own arm brought salvation for Israel when they were still slaves in Egypt? 
It meant the Lord brought ten plagues down on the Egyptians and Pharaoh. What did it look like when, when the Hebrews, the Israelites, they left Egypt and they're camped now up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them? What does it look like when the Lord worked his own salvation? The Lord told Moses, stand back, basically stand back, be quiet, get out of the way, and look what I'm going to do for you. And the Lord parted the Red Sea. And the Israelites walked through that Red Sea as on dry land. And then when Pharaoh's army tried to follow, the Lord brought that sea back together and the entire army drowned in the, ocean, in, in the sea. That's the Lord working salvation for himself. What did, it look like, um, uh, what did it look like once they got into the promised land? And they were maybe the Midianites, maybe the Philistines, maybe the Amorites. The Lord raised up judges to deliver them. You read it over and over again in the book of Judges. It's kind of a dark book. A couple famous stories. Gideon's pretty famous and more famous. But the Lord, uh, when his people are, are brought oppressed by these people groups around them, and they can't do anything about it. They're helpless. And the Lord raises up a judge to deliver them. But then it falls back into the same old problem. The Lord raises up a king to deliver them. David, a man after his own heart. The Lord promises David, uh, you will never lack a descendant to sit on your throne, which ultimately is only fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord raised up David. In Isaiah's day, when Isaiah Fighting, the enemy isn't the Philistines, it's not the Ammonites, uh, it's not the Midianites. In Isaiah's day, it's the Assyrians. And Isaiah sees this. Like, this isn't prophetic. Now, this is something Isaiah Assyrians wipe out the northern nation of Israel, the ten tribes. There's only two tribes left, Judah and Benjamin. Assyria wipes out the northern ten tribes. Assyria then wipes out pretty much every city in Judah. The only one left is Jerusalem. And there seems to be no hope. And Hezekiah and the people pray a prayer of confession before the Lord, and they cry out to God. And the Lord sends an angel that slays the Assyrian army outside the Jerusalem walls. That's the Lord working salvation for himself. What happens, what if the problem isn't Philistines, Midianites, Assyrians, Babylonians, Romans, Greeks? What if the problem is yourself? What if the problem is yourself? What if your biggest problem isn't the nationers around you? It's not the people that are different from you. What if the problem is yourself? What if that's the problem? How does the Lord work salvation when you're the problem? I watched a little bit, enough to refresh my memory, I watched a little bit of Wizard of Oz again. And if you've never seen Wizard of Oz, shame on you. But in Wizard of Oz, eventually the, the straw man gets his brain and the tin man gets his heart. And uh, who's the other guy? Oh, the lion gets his courage. And then they're like, well, what about Dorothy? Dorothy just wants to go back home. She wants to go back to Kansas. And Dorothy says, I'm afraid he doesn't have anything in that little black bag for me. I'm afraid he can't solve my problem. And the wizard says, I will take you. I will take you. I will do it myself. Now, if you know the story, it falls kind of flat because the balloon goes and Dorothy gets left. So that part doesn't carry over real well. But in this situation, we've got Israel 
They are the problem. How is the Lord going to solve it when he works salvation for himself? So it tells me, verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. What does the Lord do? He comes himself. Son of God didn't just come as a man. The eternal Son of God became a man. He became fully human as you are human, yet without sin. He came with all the weaknesses of flesh, yet without sin. So the Lord worked salvation for himself by coming himself to solve the situation. Now, there's at least these two main points, which I'm not quite ready for the Lord's Supper yet, but when I am, I want you to remember these two points. Number one, the fact that the Lord works salvation for himself, the fact that he mediates or intercedes himself tells me, number one, God is not indifferent to injustice and sin and suffering, which is one of the most common complaints in a secular culture. If God is so good, if he's what Christians say that he is, why is there so much suffering? Answer, he came because of our suffering. He came because we were the problem. That tells me that, number one. The second thing it tells me in this passage is we can't solve the problem. He, he could have sent another prophet. He could have, he could have given us more scripture. Uh, he, could have, he could have raised up another judge, another deliverer, another king, another people group. It's never going to solve the problem we have on the inside where it starts. So he came himself to intercede. That word intercede is a word that's used 46 times as a verb in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating word. It oftentimes, in, in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 2, it's actually used four times in the end of, I'm not going to have you turn there, I don't have time for it, but at the end of uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, it's used four times and it's translated to strike down, to strike down which is very interesting. He came to strike down. He came to bear a burden. He came to mediate. He came to strike. Let me show you how it's used in chapter 53. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. It's used twice regarding the servant who bears sin. The same word intercede is used in chapter 53. It's translated different English words. Let's start in verse 4. Regarding the Son of God, regarding Jesus of Nazareth, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid, that's the same word, 
the Lord has laid, has mediated, has struck on him the iniquity of us all. Now go down to verse 12. Therefore, chapter 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How did the Lord solve Israel's sin problem? He became one of us. He became one of them. He became became a son of David. He became a son of Abraham. And he bore their sin away. He took their sin away. He was struck for the sins of his people. He He was numbered among the transgressors, he who knew no sin. That's how the Lord worked salvation for himself. But there's one kind of a a disconnect here, and that is what I just read you in chapter 53, the Lord working salvation for himself, bearing the sins of his people, doesn't sound anything like what I'm reading in chapter 59. It sounds like two individuals. Got a suffering servant being struck for the sins of his people. But in chapter 59, you've got this individual who arrays himself in robes of power and glory, and he's doing something. Which is it? And you know the answer it's both. When Christ came the first time, we read about him in the Gospels, he was a suffering servant. He demonstrated. His humanity. When Christ comes back a second time, he will not be demonstrating his humanity, though he's fully human. When he comes back a second time, he will be demonstrating his deity because he's also fully God. The church is waiting for Christ to come back in power and glory. He is fully God. He will be the character we're reading about in Isaiah 59. It will not be a repeat of Isaiah 53. Israel stumbled... Because they wanted Isaiah 59. Israel wanted the the individual we read about in chapter 59. This individual who puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Who puts on garments of vengeance and conquers the enemy. But what if he'd come like that the first time? If Christ had come from heaven, become a man, and come like Isaiah 59 the first time, what would have happened? Who would have been left standing? No one. Because Israel is is deserving of God's vengeance the same as every other people. So the first time he came as a suffering servant to take away sin. The second time he will come, and his coming will be associated both with confessed, and with judgment and vengeance upon those who have resisted his grace, those who have denied his grace, those who have seen his grace and his mercy. He will come with both grace and coming. Comments or questions? I'm doing okay on time. Anything I need to clarify? We're going to pick this up next week. We'll finish out chapter 59. I love the fact that we did the first 14 and a half verses in 59, and we're going to spend two weeks on the last part. Because you know what? The last part is all about the grace of God. And the grace of God I much prefer, prefer to dwell on rather than my own sin. Now, i got to get through my sin. i got to understand my sin. But I want to celebrate the grace 
of God. This is the good news. We'll spend two weeks relishing 59 before we move on to chapter 60. So, Michelle, if you'll come forward and help me, we will, uh, we will prepare to do the Lord's Supper. I think we will start off by serving uh, the left-hand side congregation first. If you're a believer, you want to participate in the Lord's Supper, a celebration of God's